Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. Hello, this is Human Ordinary. I'm Sam Loy. Welcome to the show. Before we get started, I just wanted to let everyone know that you can now subscribe to the show and get exclusive subscriber-only rewards for about the cost of a coffee every month. At least I think so, but um, I don't drink coffee. Uh, Anyway, head to possible.com and search for the show. So that's P-O-Z-I-B-L-E.com. And a special shout out to Christopher Taylor from Utah, who is our very first subscriber. We're pretty excited. Thank you, mate. We really appreciate that. Okay, so I think that the desire to know information, to seek the truth, is a real strong driver in a lot of people. You know, it's that sense you might get to keep asking questions, to not let an incomplete story stay unfinished. It may not always be for the greater good, but it's just something that you have to do. You know, this one time we were living in North Queensland and there was a big cyclone that rolled through town. The next day, emergency services made an explicit request for people not to drive around looking at the damage, but I couldn't help myself. I knew that what I was doing was wrong. I knew that what I was doing was probably getting in the way, and I really tried not to get in the way, but I just had to see. I just had to fill in those gaps. It's the same compulsion that sees me to slow down to look at car accidents or to sometimes read the entire plot of a film on the internet before I've seen it. I just have to know. This week's story by Mick Cavazzini, I think was born of a similar drive. Although unlike my experiences, the result of Mick's compulsion is of benefit to others. He uncovers a story, the cause of a terrible accident that may have stayed buried, and offers a window into another culture. Here's Mick. When I first met Bashir, I didn't know that he'd be killed two days later, right on the mountain we were watching from my hotel. This was in Gulmarg, a sparse, scruffy village in Indian Kashmir that sits in the lap of Mount Afawat. The creatively named New Mount View Hotel also looks out over a quiet market street, so the locals often drop in for a cup of saffron tea and a gossip. Bashir and I were in the cosy wood-panelled lounge, warming ourselves around a sort of drum stove. He was 28 and had gotten into the growing ski industry as a good way to make a living. Oh, come on, He's, he was a great person. He... He was the one, like, you know, who could understand uh, wrong and right. That's Bashir's close friend, Fayaz Saeed. You might also hear his Tibetan Mastiff in the background. He was the one who could meet everyone and be friendly with everyone. You could say, no, he's like my brother. Uh, Well, hard worker, but unfortunate, you know, Bashir was the one who was, like, earning and feeding his family. Yeah, I could see he was very... Calm and very calm person. Very calm. He'd become had he become more spiritual in recent times. He, he was yes. He just recently started spirituality. Spiritual. Um, he was praying five times. Um, actually, he used to go with the, you know. He was recently he met one spiritual group. They came from Srinagar. 
and he were teaching them how to do ski they used to you know stop skiing at the prey time and they pray and they teach him that this is not it it's not this life is not something which where we are going to stay forever we can live our life but this is not goal Bashir had grown his beard long and he had dark thoughtful eyes i heard that he didn't particularly approve of foreigners casually using the islamic greeting though we only talked a couple of times i hope he became a little more convinced that some tourists had come here not just for the powder but with a deep respect for the culture Here's Bila Bakshi of Kashmir Heliski. Okay, my name is Bila Bakshi and I do a heli guiding here and 2015 is our fifth season. Mm. And Bashir what kind of a guy was him? I met, I met him a couple of times and he seemed like a serious, quiet kind of guy. Yeah, he was very very bit serious. He was not talking too much and he was all the time thinking and like very quiet but he was very smart and he was a good skier, you know. I can see him like you know from 2000 2004-5 to this time he just learned a lot and he was like trying his best levels to be a good skier and a good best guide mm. but you know this time luck did not help him. Gulmarg is an odd place. The Kashmiri town is actually 15 kilometers down the valley. But in the late 1800s the British built a hunting lodge up here and even a golf course which is still maintained. Ever since the colonial power left in 1947, the region has suffered from a bloody border dispute between India and Pakistan. Actions from separatist Kashmiri militia would be answered by the Indian army with brutal martial law. While the live conflict has cooled off a lot in the last two decades, there's still a simmering tension. You see army checkpoints everywhere and civilian protests sometimes get shut down with violence. But these days Indian tourists come to Gulmarg in droves, particularly to escape the heat of the plains in summer. And in winter too, they pile out of buses to get hauled up the road by the wiry local sled wallers. Some people are just happy to take cool selfies in the snow, and a couple of tea bars crawl with beginner skiers. In 2005, a cable car gondola was built up to Mount Afawat's long summit ridge which peaks at 4200 meters. This opened the door to a huge area of complex alpine terrain that's been drawing more and more snow riders to Gulmarg every year. Well, you've got the world's easiest backcountry access. You know, you've got the world's highest gondola that you can ski or snowboard from. Andrew Turland runs the guiding company DI5 Adventures with his Kashmiri business partner. He also has an epic beard, but he's just from Melbourne. Most tourists take a mountain guide with them because Gulmarg isn't a regular ski resort crisscrossed with slopes and lifts. It's mostly ungroomed backcountry and riders come here to find first tracks in fresh snow. No trendy chalets, no crowds, and very limited control of avalanche danger. it's extremely inviting to the untrained eye you know if you just look out there you're like wow there's heaps of powder fields and i'm going to go and rip myself one of those however that's combined with a particularly touchy snowpack usually in february 2015 the snowpack was particularly touchy i arrived in gulmarg as a fierce storm dumped a meter of fresh snow on top of a heavy but fragile base but the morning of Wednesday 11th was a brilliant blue. A hundred odd people queued restlessly at the gondola station. There was a cheer as it finally started moving late in the morning, 
and at the top, skiers and snowboarders fanned out like ants along the ridgeline. Some were breathing heavily in the thin air as they hiked to the summit. Then left and right, they dropped with joy onto the steep, unblemished snow. But only the snowball right beneath the gondola had been bombed with explosives to trigger avalanches preventatively. Outside of this small, patrolled area, the slopes were loaded like rabbit traps. As my group of five traversed across the summit plateau, every now and then we'd hear a sickening woof. This sound meant that fat slabs of snow deep beneath our feet were crumpling together. On a steeper slope, these would slide for sure, so we found a gentle shaded gully to stay safe. We floated down one by one through the trees and traded nervous high fives at the bottom. But on the other side of the mountain, a different story was starting to unfold. Petr Zherdiev is a lanky and energetic Russian skier, and he was out with a large group of friends. Um, our group, we were skiing the main bowl, uh, and we were quite bored about it. We, we wanted to go somewhere else. The we- uh, weather was uh, too um, warm for, uh, for snow to be, that, to be a powder that we want to ski. It was approaching 1pm, and the group were in a rush to get another run in before the snow got any stickier. They grabbed a local mountain guide hanging around the lifts and hurried southward along the summit ridge. They were looking for an iconic 1,400-metre line to the bottom of the valley. But they didn't get far before they were stopped by soldiers from an Indian army post at the top of the mountain. With its white domes, it looks more like a lunar base, and it keeps an eye on the jagged skyline marking the disputed border with Pakistan. The soldiers were whistling and uh, not letting us to go to the other side of the mountain, uh, and they were sh- showing us that we should go uh, by the cornices. Cornices are big, wind-blown crests of snow that hang from a ridge. While they might be fun to launch from, the extra weight of a person can cause them to break off without warning and tumble down the mountain. Advanced skiers also love darting into steep, narrow gullies called kulwars. Petr's wife Maria and their friend Kirill Kornushov had decided to stay back on the patrol bowl for one last quick run. My name is Kirill, and uh, that day we were up uh, on the gondola. Uh, we were looking uh, on the left. Uh, we saw a lot of people on the top of the uh, mountain. And uh, I asked Maria, maybe it's, it's our friends? He's, she said, yeah, maybe. And I saw a group of people. It was three person uh, who was riding down on the collar. And uh, they did it, how uh, uh, to say, uh, very impulsive. They were watching riders in the Harpat Kued Bowl, about 500 metres away from the gondola. It was clear view for us. We saw the guide was standing in the middle of Kuluar, was waiting for the other persons. Uh, then we were discussing other items and uh, uh, looked another side. Then uh, we um, heard something awful. Something terrible. Something loud. Uh, then we, uh, we turned our heads and saw a huge avalanche come down. And we uh, haven't seen no more of those uh, three persons. And uh, huge clouds of snow that come to the air. Um, what was the sound like when that made you turn around? 
Uh, I don't know how to explain. It was uh, deep and uh, loud. It was, it, it was my scream. Avalanche! <laughs> yeah. Look, look! And uh, we saw really huge clouds. It uh, came uh, deeply to the valley. Uh, then we uh, began to uh, scream at the radio. Where are you? Uh, answer! For some time we didn't uh, uh, hear the answer from our friends. Yeah, those uh, 15 seconds between our request and their response, it was really long time. The friends finally regrouped at the top gondola station. Uh, there I met Maria. Uh, she was crying, uh, shouting at me, hitting me. So she thought that I got into avalanche. I used my binoculars that I carry with me to see how exactly uh, the couloir looks. Um, the place where the previously cornice was. Uh, there was no cornice. There were rocks and um, the snow pack that was there just slided completely up to the ground, down to the ground. Uh, and also what was also terrifying that those ski tracks going down to the point where there was no snow, like someone cut the, the tracks and the snow and, the, and there were rocks further. Luke Smithwick was Gulmarg's new snow safety officer after a career of ski patrolling in North America. But he was no stranger to the Himalaya either, after 70 climbing expeditions in the region, mostly first ascents. But today he was in charge of a tense patrol base halfway up Mount Afawat. We are currently watching another avalanche at the exact same time that was triggered. And Mirage, ski patrol Mirage yelled out, avalanche, big avalanche. And I quickly turned the other way and we saw the avalanche coming down in the Hapat Kuid Bowl. And we immediately deployed patrol to the top of the scene from our cover at the top of the gondola. We went up on the chairlift and we called the helicopter company here as well and had them respond as well and bring in other patrollers to start searching the path. At that point in time, the news we received was that there was three people caught. And I was up on the other mountain doing heli skiing and we saw big smokes up coming up, avalanche coming, and I was knowing it's an avalanche D4, it's not a small avalanche. An avalanche classified D4 is powerful enough to destroy a building or two. This one was four metres deep at the point where the snow slabs split apart and a few hundred metres across. That makes for a horrifying volume of snow. Bila flew his chopper in over the scene within 10 minutes, scanning the churned avalanche debris for a beep. A signal from the rescue beacon that every backcountry rider should take with them. Then we went all on the searching mode and I got some signal. That's what I got out. But I could not go straight that time in the avalanche runout zone because there were chances from the secondary avalanche coming on the other slopes and I have responsibility of my clients. And then I dropped my clients back at the rescue hut, dropped them on a safe spot and then come with my guides, you know, because my guides is my company. So I know like they're experienced and they're going to help me and they jump in the heli and we went in next like seven minutes there. We went with the skis and started looking, looking in three directions. We make three groups in three directions. So we want to have a checkup zone and somewhere looking up our secondary avalanche, keeping eyes on us. So then we found the signal and we started digging. So, but it took us time. He was underneath nearly one and a half meter of snow. And how long did this take to dig the hole? Yeah, it took us nearly seven, eight minutes. We were trying hard, but you know, like when the avalanche stops, it's like concrete. 
you know, it's like really, I saw like some partners were helping me, their shovels were not even working, it was so hard, I can see him, how hard we were pushing, you know. The team finally reached the skier buried in the hardening snow. It was only then they realised it wasn't a tourist they were digging out, but local ski guide Bashir. Bashir Bakshi, in fact. It was Bila's younger cousin. And when we dug him out, and I can see him face, and he was still under snow, I cleared his face, and it was a big shock for me. I cannot believe it. Like, it's, he's my cousin, and he's nearly dead. He's almost dead. He could not feel any his blast or anything, breath. You know, it was a big shock. I could not hold myself. We just put straight into him, Heli, on the rescue sledge, and without any wasting any time, brought him here to the hospital and put the oxygen on the Heli. But it was too late. It was already cleared. He's dead. Bashir's body had been found, but there was still no sign of the other two people that had been seen riding the bowl. Avalanche rescue is a race against the clock. After only half an hour buried in the snow, the chance of surviving suffocation drops below 50%. Petr was asked to join another team to sweep the slope again from the very top of the mountain. It was quite scary to be there, uh, to see all those big blocks of snow and all the avalanche debris... Uh, they were starting to freeze and become the solid, like, rock state. Any sizes, the sizes of uh, human tall, maybe smaller. Uh, it is, was really difficult to ski them. There was uh, rocks uh, through the debris that probably that uh, guide hit on his way down. Because as, as we saw, as we realized that the guide followed all the way down the mountain through the couloir. It was not the coolest shoot. It was really narrow. For two hours, rescuers on skis and snowmobiles scoured the area, but they got no more beeps from the avalanche debris. Behind the scene, calls were going around the village to identify all the parties who'd been on the mountain. Eventually, no one was reported missing, so the search was called off. So what happened to the other people seen on the slope? And who had triggered the avalanche in the first place? We'll hear about that after a short break. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Human Ordinary is sponsored by Movement Sunglasses. Listeners of the show will probably know that Movement has been a loyal sponsor of Human Ordinary over the last couple of years, but I mostly bang on about their watches. This time, I wanted to clue you in about something else they do equally well, and that is sunglasses. So here's my deal with Sunnies. I've only ever bought cheap pairs because the fancy ones are too expensive and I don't like getting ripped off. But then the cheap ones always end up breaking because they're cheap and I just have to buy more. 
The good folk at Movement understood this and went about making quality, trendy sunnies at an affordable price. You don't have to choose between style and function because these babies have both. Plus, you can get them polarized and they start at just $60 bucks. They've got heaps of styles to choose from, but mine are the runaway. Not only do they keep me from needing to squint all day, but they're also really strong and make me look as flash as Flash Gordon in the flash in a lightning storm. Now that's flash. Listeners to the show can get 15% off today with free shipping and free returns just by going to mvmt.com human. Come see why movement keeps growing and check out their expanding collection. That's mvmt.com human. Come and join the movement. This episode of Human Ordinary is sponsored by ShipStation. Down at Human Ordinary HQ, we've decided to start offering subscriber-only rewards for listeners. Some of those rewards include merchandise, and any time we get an order, we need help shipping all the stuff out. Fortunately for us, there's ShipStation, the number one e-commerce solution for online sellers. What ShipStation is all about is finding the best shipping carrier based on your needs, so you always get the best deal. ShipStation work with all the major shipping carriers like FedEx, UPS, Australia Post, USPS and heaps more. They even offer discounts on shipping costs, letting a one-person shop access the same postage that is usually reserved for the massive retailers. Whether you are selling on eBay, Amazon, Shopify or over 100 popular selling channels, ShipStation lets you access all your orders from one simple dashboard. And right now, Human Ordinary listeners get to try ShipStation for free for 60 days when you use the promo code HUMAN. You can start your free trial without even entering a credit card number. Just visit ShipStation.com, click on the little microphone at the top, and type in HUMAN. That's ShipStation.com and promo code HUMAN. ShipStation. Make ship happen. Back to the story. One fatality, but still no idea how the tragedy had unfolded. Bashir could have triggered the avalanche himself, or maybe it was other riders on the slope with him. It's also possible that the cornices had fallen from the ridge in the warmth of the spring afternoon. But I think he was skiing down and the people who triggered the avalanche by Russian who jumped over the cornice one time go because they thought like, oh, people had skied those bowlers, so it's safe. Nothing is unsafe here. Or maybe there was possibility of natural level because the temperature afternoon gone like one o'clock very high. So yeah, it was not a good time I think to ride those bowls. It was good like he was not having any client. He went himself enjoying skiing, but he made a decision to go his own to ski those bowls. But only I think like only he went there because he saw lots of it was all tracked. There was not a single meter of snow which was not already tracked. Bashir himself had skied the line the same morning with another cousin. But if he returned there alone, who had Kirill and Maria seen from the gondola just before the avalanche? A week after the incident, ski patrol were handed some footage shot right from the thick of things. The tourists who filmed it were another group of Russians, but they asked not to be identified. I just show you the place, I'm down. What you're hearing is no reenactment. The wide-angle GoPro footage looks uphill and leftward across the slope. The snowboarders cheer each other on as they arrive one by one to join their mountain guide around a cluster of large rocks. Just fell down on that side. 
As they call to a girl who's fallen behind, they see the avalanche starting out on the far side of the bowl. By the time she arrives, the snow slide has reached their location. The speed of the avalanche is frightening, and the riders fuss and pull each other closer into the rocks for safety. The rushing snow swells up to thigh deep and sweeps past on both sides of their small buttress. When the danger has passed, they spend agonising moments calling to the last rider in their group. Thankfully, he turns up safe. But the video made me think of the terrain Kirill had described as he watched his impulsive riders from the gondola. I emailed him for more details, and he sent back a photo of the devastated hillside minutes after the event. He'd highlighted a raised spine of rocks dividing the northern two couloirs of Hapad Kued Bol. So probably Kirill had been watching the group from the GoPro video rather than Bashir's. I needed to know what they saw on that day. Since I recognised the young guide in the footage, I approached him around town a few days later. My name is Mahmoud Abbas. All right. After just doing snowboarding from last four or five years in here. So Before that you were skiing also? Yeah, skiing also. Mm-hmm. I just guiding like after like three years, I started my guiding. So, in, in fact, you were very close to that huge avalanche that happened two weeks ago. And I'm yeah, inter- yeah. interested to see what, what you saw of on, on that day. Wow. It was a very crucial day in my life, very bad day in my life. I had the eyewitness of this avalanche. Yeah, so you... Your group, I think, was on the um, this side, the eastern, eastern bowl, side of the bowl, yes, closest to the gondola. Yeah, very close. Very and Bashir was on the other side. On the side, on the bowl. He is under the bowl, but we are a little bit up under the rocks. So that's why we are just. And could you see Bashir in his group? Or? No, Bashir don't have a group on that time. He has to go skiing alone. Mm-hmm. So, were you watching him when it happened? Yes, yes. When he have go in the bowl, I will just watching the guys who is with me. He has to go on my front of my eyes. Go on there under the avalanche so it's very hard for me i mean you you guys were very lucky to yeah we are very lucky i had to just stay with my group under the rocks so that's it's very 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 good moment in my life i have just saved my group like 10 12 people on the avalanche so when the avalanche passed then we had to go down mm-hmm. um do you feel sort of looking back that maybe you you didn't judge the conditions correctly or was there anything to worry you at the at the time when you were there at that moment, the snow looks a little bit quiet. When we had to just start, we have some guys with us. They are a little bit crazy. So that's when they just make a trigger. It's because of the, this, the avalanche has come down. Some of the guys in some your group? Some of the Russian guys. In yeah. your group? In my group. In, it's not me. In this, my other guide is Paul. We are like four or five guides in that time on the mountain. Uh-huh. It's the other guy who make the trigger on the top. It is the, the avalanche starts on the top. When the, one guy has to just try to push himself on the downwards for riding, and he make a little bit trigger. When the corn is crashes on the top, the avalanche crashes like three ridges, one, two, and three. I felt like the story was starting to make sense. Bashir had been skiing deep in the first couloir when the massive avalanche was funneled over him. The first slide caused the other two couloirs to give way and sweep past Abbas's sheltered group. There were at least 20 other people in Hapat Kued Bowl, all ready to drop in from the top 
and it's truly a miracle there weren't further casualties. Abbas and Billah were on the same page about the fact that Bashir was on his own, and the first slide was probably triggered by another group of snow riders above. I heard this theory from a few others in town as well. There was a confusing article published by a ski website claiming that Bashir had been skiing with some clients, though this was later retracted. But something else didn't quite fit either. Ski patrollers had been at the top gondola station that afternoon, warning riders that conditions in the backcountry were getting too dangerous. They had seen Bashir head out with other people, but they weren't foreigners. It's three people they know from their village, and they'll know exactly what happened. Uh, Two ski patrollers spoke to them moments before it happened, but they haven't been been able to speak with him yet. So So I was thrown by the idea that he was taking two Russian clients. No, no, no. no, no. It was three local skiers. Okay, okay. Because it makes sense to me that if they were friends or locals Mm -hmm. and they felt responsible for this that they would be ashamed and maybe go underground and but it also would surprise me that none of the patrollers none of the lift controllers would rec- would recognize them would know who, yeah. they know exactly yeah. who they are okay neither luke nor his kashmiri colleagues at ski patrol were able to get an account from these men and none of the other lucky riders that were on the scene that day volunteered any information In many places, backcountry riders would come together to try and learn from such a tragedy. But maybe the sense of responsibility or shame was too great. Sadly, it's not the first time this kind of paranoia has played out in Gulmarg. It's just like the event from last year uh, where there was a foreign skier that lost his life in an avalanche. Um, The party that triggered the avalanche, um, that party was led by an IFMGA guide who um, isn't coming forward to uh, explain what happened. The 2014 avalanche happened right in the next bowl across. As well as the Swiss victim, two others were pulled out of the debris alive. In that event too, there were many parties involved, and it prompted a major investigation from local government and the media. In contrast, Bashir's death only received passing attention. I wondered whether a Kashmiri death was considered less dramatic for the resort's publicity or whether there were some reputations at stake. Whatever the case, Andrew Turland says that there are frequent examples of both visitors and locals underestimating the dangers of Mount Afawat. Operating on a mountain this big requires a certain level of humility. If you're going through a backcountry gate in a western resort, it's a lot more serious. You, you, know, you have the signage there, you have a definite gate in most places like crossing that boundary, is something serious. In the peak of winter, there are 600 people a day going up the mountain. That's a lot to let loose in a sometimes sketchy environment. In the days running up to Bashir's death, there had already been several slides, and the Daily Snow Bulletin had warned about the dangerous afternoon temperatures. While the report is provided in English and Russian, there are almost no resources directed to the Kashmiri skiers. This means naive tourists are often escorted by naive guides. The majority of those touting themselves as mountain guides don't have formal training to recognise avalanche risk or carry out a rescue. Only a handful of them were lucky enough to receive on-the-job training from experienced, usually foreign, tour operators. The situation we've got at the moment being kids who can ride or ski going, 
oh, wow, I can make lots of money. I'm going to go out and start my own guide company. And unfortunately, they don't have the resources to train themselves in this way. So guide job, it's not easy. So guide should be the reading mentally, knowledge, patience, each and everything. That's what guide need to knowledge, every side. Even weather, even snow, even everything. That's Yasin Khan, the godfather of Gulmarg's touring scene after 24 years on Mount Afawat. With aviator sunglasses and a trim moustache, he looks like a sun-wizened Richard Gere, except much more commanding in his woolen gown and triangular karakul cap. We just say the guides now, as per my experience, they're not guides. They are not agree to willing to spend some time, fully a couple of winters. They are on a mountain free of the villages. They just want to make quick money. They are quick money to be rich by car in this and this level lot. If you're up there with some clients and you see someone who is not qualified, do you ever say anything yourself to them? Oh, myself, I like to say a lot, but I couldn't because they are getting to lose and they are losing by me. It has to be do something to by the government. They are not controlling this kind of things. You can't blame the 50 or more young bucks who are freelancing like this. Mountain guides can make in a single day what an average person earns in a month, around 3,000 rupees or 45 US dollars. Everyone I spoke to insisted it was up to the government to reinvest some of the money it makes from the lift operations and land rental into better training for the locals. Safety could also be improved by resourcing the ski patrol better and getting the lifts open during the cooler morning hours. But Luke Smithwick says that ultimately, snowriders need to be able to make their own informed decisions about risk. The idea of like ski patrol and me policing things doesn't work, and it never will work. And you can't close the backcountry. It's an oxymoron. You have to uh, put the responsibility in the hands of the users, the people. Because they're going to go, and if you want them to go safely, they need the latest, greatest education every year. It's a challenging job for you, particularly you, you're, um, you're the one that controls the safety within the, the gondola-bound ski area and pulls the plug if it's too dangerous. Sure. What are the pressures that you you see from the the ski guides that want want to get some work from the skiers that have flown halfway across the world to get up there. So absolutely there's pressure every day to get things opened up so people can go and have fun. It's one of the hardest things to do as a ski guide, as a mountain guide. I'm a mountain guide in the summer to say no to people. You know, there's so many things. I'm only going to be here for a few more days or we're not going to get to ski or I'm never coming back here. All kinds of, of factors that shouldn't go into decision making in in a wild mountain environment. It's been a really hard season for everyone. I'm not speaking personally. I'm speaking from just Kashmir as a whole. Um, there was a flood this past autumn, and it wiped out a lot. Um, tourism's really down overall, even outside of skiing. And then it came into a low snow year, and snow is food. Snow is life. It's tourism to the people here. I actually interviewed the regional tourism minister, and like most politicians, he made all sorts of vague excuses and even vaguer promises to look into the problem. The truth is, the ski industry is likely not a top priority for the government, 
as they make much more money from domestic tourists in summer. When I went back to Gulmarg in 2018, the infrastructure had barely changed. Though there were a couple of new, outrageously plush hotels, there were still blackouts every day, and much of the garbage is just dumped off a hillside out of town. But it was still great to drink saffron tea once more with old friends. I'd originally gone to Kashmir worried about being the obnoxious westerner arriving in a developing country with all this fancy ski gear. But actually, the shared love of the mountains was a great icebreaker and the start of many rambling conversations. There seems to be much more of a gulf between the Kashmiris and the Indian tourists. Much more baggage of history and class. But I still couldn't help thinking about the role we snow seekers had played in Bashir's death. Bringing the money and the temptation to work even in the face of risk. Bashir was the first Kashmiri to die as a result of this modern industry. And the community is still learning to harness this valuable but dangerous resource. So it was a big lesson for everyone here in the Golmarag, what those mountains can do, you know, even I did not know I skied for nearly one week because of that shock. I'm not really mentally and physically fit with my clients because I know like if I make one little small mistake in Heli, it can kill us all. So I thought like, okay, once I'll get back on track, I need to be physically and mentally fit. It's going to hurt a lot to our family because he was very young and he was not married and he was a good guy. So we, we still don't believe he's dead, you know, honestly. That's like still we think sometimes he's alive. I couldn't bring myself to probe more deeply what Bila was feeling, particularly when I heard that he had actually employed Bashir for a period. Here's Fayaz Saeed once more. Since from uh, eight, nine years he's wor- he was working here, he was living in mountains, early in the morning leaving and going to mountains, and... He was working for before for Heliski, but they took him out. The reason was he was uh, not listening properly, hearing properly. Uh, he, he, was, was the he was deaf. Yes, he was little, like seventy percent deaf. That was the reason I think he got he got stuck in avalanche. Otherwise, an avalanche comes, you can hear, so you are able to move and you can try to save yourself. Now Bashir was trying to do hard work and make his company. That's mm-hmm. what he told me. And he was like also every day coming here and speaking with me about his future, his plans. If you bring customers, if we can work together, you know, all these things. He was actually uh, making plans, but the best planner is there upstairs. He is the best planner, God. We can make plan, but the final decision is his. In accordance with Islamic custom, Bashir was buried within the day of his death. The mountain community, local and visiting, came together to pay respects. We don't wait, actually, Muslims. Our Prophet said, as much as fast, you take the body to the graveyard. Because there are angels waiting to welcome him. And everyone, every relative, friends, there are thousands of people coming to attend the attend the pray peace for his soul allahumma gfir hina wa maytina wa shahidina wa ghaibina wa kabirina wa sagirina wa zakirna wa unsana wa jayna ummat alayhi salatu wasalam allahumma gfir li kafati almu'minin wal mu'mina wal muslimin wa ahya wal awad innaka ghafir zunub wa qadat ay allah bashir ke ruh wa jannat
Thanks to everyone who spoke to me for this story. Bila Bakshi, Fayaz Said, Luke Smithwick, Petr Zhedyev, Kirill Kornushov, Maria Denisenko, and Yasin Khan. Kudos to Andrew Turland for taking it upon himself to bring an avalanche safety instructor to Gulmarg after these events. Original guitar musings for this story were written by Kent Sutherland. Thanks also for the great music licensed from artists Ben Carey, David Shezdai, Gregor Herbner, Nassim Ulhaq, Nicholas Caffrey and Stephen Davidson. You'll find the track listings and links at our website. Cheers to Sam, May and Cinnamon for their editorial advice. I'm Mika Cavazzini, closing this episode of Human Ordinary, dedicated to the memory of Bashir Bakshi. Mick produces another great podcast called Pomegranate Health. It's about the culture of medicine, and there are episodes on cross-cultural practice, diagnostic error, and medicinal cannabis. Check it out wherever you get your podcasts. Another podcast I'd like to tell you about is Book Cheat. It's by comedian and good bloke Dave Warnicky and is also on the Planet Broadcasting Network. And if you check it out, the latest episode, which is all about William Shakespeare's The Tempest, features me trying to sound both funny and smart. Here's Dave. Hello, Dave Warnicky here to tell you all about my new podcast, Book Cheat. It's the book club podcast where I've read the book so you don't have to. On each episode, we look at one of the classics. We're talking your Austens, your Dickens, your Shakespeare's, your Chekhov's. Stuff you'd love to be able to say you read, but who's got the time? Luckily, I've made time, and on each episode, I'm going to give two guests a cheat book to a classic. I'll tell them about the plot, the characters, the themes, arm them with some key quotes, ask them to review it, and by the end of the episode, both you and they will be able to pretend you've read it. Book Cheat. Available on the Planet Broadcasting Network. Check it out on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Human Ordinary is produced in Melbourne and Sydney by Mick Cavazzini, Cinnamon Napard, May Jasper, and me, Sam Lloyd. Special thanks to Claire Tonti at Planet Broadcasting and Guy Scott Wilson at ACAST. Our artwork is by Fergal Quigley, and our theme music is by The Contortionist Handbook. Score a free t-shirt and ad-free episodes by subscribing to Human Ordinary at Possible.com. For more info on the show, head to the website or find us on Facebook and Twitter. Anyway, thanks for listening. This podcast is part of the Planet Broadcasting Network. Visit planetbroadcasting.com for more podcasts from our great mates. I mean, if you want. It's up to you. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.